If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm chapter 13. That's where we're going to start. You can get your message notes out, and, uh, and we'll kind of follow along there. Um, we're going to do a Q&A series uh, for a couple of reasons I'm going to explain, but just before we, I launch into it, I want you to take the 3 by 5 card that's in the, your seat back pocket. There's, gonna, there's 3 by 5 cards right in your seat back pocket. And I'm going to ask you uh, during my opening remarks to write a question if you have one. And, uh, and there's pens right there, and if you need a pen, just share among yourselves. Uh, ushers also have pens, and if you can't find a 3x5 card, just raise your hand, and, and the ushers have them in their hands. But, but this 3x5 card, I want you to write any question that you have uh, about church, about God, about... And it doesn't have to be a deep theological question, people, all right? You don't have to come up with, like, the really... It could be... I mean, it could be anything. It could be, like, um, why is the carpet so dirty at church? I have an answer. I have an answer for that, and uh, I'm going to save it in case you ask it. But it is, um, it's a multifaceted answer. So I just want you to um, think about all kinds of questions that you're interested in, like um, uh, how are we going to proceed as a church in this building right here, like, how, what are we gonna? What are, is this where we're gonna meet for the rest of our life? What's gonna happen next? I mean, you can ask questions like that. Actually, we're talking about some of that in our community meeting, so make sure you show up at that. Um, there's any kinds of questions you you want to ask. If you want to ask a, a theological question, that's fine. And then uh, we're gonna collect those here, and then we'll use today's questions that we collected in all the services, and the ones that were already offered online. And we'll kind of put them all together and we'll develop a theme, right, about uh, themes about what, um, what we're actually going to talk about, what, what the, the questions that were asked the most. And today, I'm going to answer, I think, a couple of yours that you ask right here on the spot. So, um, so anyway, um, so why don't, you, why, don't you, why don't you write down a question and uh, I'm going I'm to share some ideas about why we're doing this series. Uh, I, I think questioning is an important part of life. Um, I, 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 think, I think if we, if we look at it, what leads to a religious mindset or a, a religion that is dead and not life-giving is, an, is the idea that we cannot question and we cannot have dialogue. It leads to ritualism. When God is really after relationship. And relationship, since God is after relationship, he, he's okay with questioning. He's not hung up on your doubts. He, he's, he's not worried. <laughs> he's not threatened by the questions that you have. And I, th I think we all have them. We just need to acknowledge them. And there's a dialogue that we need to have with God. There's a dialogue we need to have with each other. And so it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to highlight this very human response to question things. And I have a, an idea on your handout. I have some ideas I want you to see here. The first is I don't want you to fear your, the questioning of your own heart. I don't want you to fear the questioning that goes on in your own heart because you are not alone. In fact, if you look at through the scriptures and you see all of the great characters of the scripture, they all had questions. They all ran into moments where they didn't understand. One of them is in Psalm 13. Psalm 13, that's where we're starting today. 
Psalm 13, verse 1, look at what it says. This is a psalm of David. Look what he says. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? (laughs) How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Do you think God had forgotten him? Yeah, but how do you know that? That was going to be my question. Yeah, that was your question? (laughs) Did God really forget him? No. But he's saying it. It seems like you've forgotten me. (laughs) Here I am. How long are you going to act this way? He's very honest. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Have you ever wrestled with your thoughts? I have. It it, it, It can be a very dark and suffering place. David was a man that the Bible describes. Check this out. David was a man the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. And here he is having an incredibly honest, questioning dialogue with God. He says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Verse 5 comes a very powerful word. And that word is, but. (laughs) But. But I will trust. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. What? <laughs> like, this is weird. Either the guy is bipolar, or he, something else is, I mean, like, he's all over the map here. Or, he's suffering, and in the moment of his suffering, as he calls out to God, he remembers what is true, and he, lo- and he looks to him. Something happens to him in this moment. He relies on his faith. Number two in your outline is questions are seedbed for faith. Questions are seedbed for faith. In fact, I don't think that faith can exist without questions. Number three is faith can only exist in the context of doubt. People say, oh, I don't have any doubts. I don't have one. I don't have any. Those people are not living in the real world because the idea of faith only exists in the arena of questions. Faith is not something that creates certainty in this moment or in this world or in this life. It, 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 it is not, the, there, we have this, sometimes we've had in our culture an air of certainty and we've disallowed people's questions. What I think we're doing is we're chopping down people's faith. I think God, now listen, God wants us to live by faith. The scripture says we do not live by sight, we live by faith. So every, what, I, what I've had happen to me in my life is every time I get to a really good place where I feel really good and confident and ready and I, I feel, it's like something happens to challenge my faith again. 
I don't know if you've experienced that, but I think that's a human experience. I think that's God's both design and his desire to rely on him. Faith is relying on him. Not on our own ability, not on our own knowledge, even though I think knowledge is good. And as we ask questions, we want him to answer them. And that dialogue creates an element of faith. So Hebrews, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 is uh, the faith chapter, it's called. And there are all the he- tons of heroes of the faith throughout the Old Testament are listed in this chapter. And so here's what it says. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Notice what we hope for. In other words, we we haven't seen it. And being certain of what we do not see. In other words, we have faith, we have confidence in what is coming. We have confidence in what is coming. What's happening in the the world is we are living in a a broken and, and destitute culture. And, and often we find these moments of suffering or, or, or difficulty, and in those moments we have deep questions. And I, what I want to highlight for you is wrestle those questions to the ground with God and with others, with, with the people of God, and let God meet you there and speak to you because in that moment, that's where faith begins to emerge. Verse 6 in that chapter 11 of Hebrews says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't, you can't live a life with him without faith. You can't, you can't please him without faith because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Another translation says, you must come to him and believe that he is and the, the underlying phrase there or, or meaning there is you have to believe that he is who he says he is. And as you believe he is who he says he is and that he rewards those who diligently or earnestly seek him, something begins to happen when we seek him. There is, there is a reward that comes as we seek him, but we always seek him before the reward comes. This is a life of faith. It's a life of risk. It's a life of believing. It's a life of hearing his voice. And even though you, you hear his voice, you may, you may not in that moment see the difference, but the fact that you've heard his voice creates faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word. We've, we've taken that to mean the scripture. It, that's not what that actually means. What it, I mean, it can be the scripture, but what it's talking about is hearing God speak to you. When that happens, it is a moment of transformation and faith begins to rise in our hearts. It's relational. It's relational. And so I think this is an important idea for us to talk about and to be okay with questions and to wrestle a few of them to the ground over the next few weeks. Are you willing? Okay. Now, you can't, now, now even though some questions are going to be really serious, there's going to be other questions that are lighthearted and, and, and nice. And, and I, want you to, I want you to understand, I am not the Bible answer man. <laughs> I am not the Bible answer man. I'm not, I don't have all the answers to everything. But I'm going to tell you what I think and, and how I've interpreted the scriptures. And, and I'm going to prepare some of those questions when I see the themes that are emerging. And, and I've already prepared a, a, a few today. But, um, but I think there's, there's this process that we can have that's really going to be fun over the next uh, few weeks if you'll enter into it. Are you done with your uh, questions? Are you done with your questions? Okay, pass them to the right. 
to the right. All right, pass them all to the right. And the ushers are going to pick them up, and they're going to hand them to me. And while they do that, let me tell you, okay, now just, let, just pass and then pay attention to me. Can you do that? No, impossible. Okay. Here's what I, I want to give you context for every question that we uh, discussed today. And I'm, I want to give, give you context by helping you understand where, questions, where the questions fall on a grid. Right? I want to I show you something called this concentric circles of belief. Concentric circles of belief. All right, so look, put it up there, Kate. Here it is. What we have at the center of the bullseye is the, are the essentials. These are the essentials of our faith. They're Orthodox Christianity. They're, they come to us by um, teaching throughout history, by tradition, and by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, if you want to know what are the essentials that we can all agree on, I'm going to list them for you here. Kate, just put up, just put up all, the, all four of them at the same time if you can. All four of them at the same time, I'm going to kind of run through them real quick. Four essentials that I think we all have to understand. These are really foundational to our faith. No, no, no. All four of the essentials. Yeah. Okay, here they are. The Bible is the Word of God. This means that the Bible is God speaking. <laughs> Do we have it there? Are we okay? All right. The Bible is the Word of God. Thank you, Kaylin. Appreciate that. Wow, that's a lot of questions. Get to that in a second. But always one. There's always one. The Bible is the word of God. That means God's speaking. He spoke through the writers. And we have faith to believe that it is God's record of interacting with humanity. It's full of poetry. It's full of history. It's full of apocalyptic books. And, and it's full of... How many times are you going to do this, man? It's full, it's full of letters, and it's, it was put together by the hand of the Holy Spirit. We believe that. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is not just a good teacher, not just a great prophet. He is the Son of the living God, and that has massive implications for sacrificial atonement, how he took our place. He was the only one qualified. He was the only perfect one, and that's an important idea. You must be born again is an essential component of our faith being born again is a supernatural experience it is not just mental ascent it's not just following a, a, some ideas jesus said to nicodemus who came to him who's a spiritual uh, he was a religious leader and, and he was one of the pharisees but he came at night so he wouldn't be discovered because he was really curious and jesus said you're you're a teacher you know all the scriptures and yet you don't understand this you got to be born of born of the water and born of the spirit got to be born naturally and you've got to be born supernaturally. Something happens to a person when they come to faith. Verse, uh, number four is believers can be spirit-filled and spirit-led. Now, this is important to me. We can, we can disagree on how the Holy Spirit interacts with us, but we cannot disagree on the, the fact that the Holy Spirit is among us, lives among us. I believe that the, te the scriptures teach that we are spirit-filled and we continue to be filled. Ephesians 5.18 says we are being filled. He, it says be filled with the Holy Spirit, but, the, but the, the, way it's, the way it works grammatically is he's saying, you want to I want you to continue to be spirit-filled. Continue to be filled over and over. It's be being filled. Keep being filled. And so I believe that these are four essential things to the Christian life. And once you, get past, once you get past these, then there's something called interpretations. Interpretations, that's when you take the Bible and, and, you, um, and you say, and you read it, and then you look up and you say, now what that means is, 
As soon as you do that, that's what interpretations are. They, you start to interpret the, the scripture. You start to say what it means. You start to say how this works. And listen, they're, not all interpretations are created alike. They're not all equally respected. So what I'm talking about when I say interpretations is respected points of view. And when I say respected, what I mean respected by uh, historical Orthodox Christianity over the centuries. And, and, and you know, one, the, the, one of the reasons we do the Nicene Creed every, almost every week is that we are articulating some really core principles, some essentials that were written in response to um, a heresy that was tearing apart Jesus and his divinity. And there'd been a long enough uh, journey in the, in the faith, 325 AD, that they were starting to lose touch with what the eyewitnesses had said, and they really needed to articulate it kind of once and for all. And, um, and so there's a response there that it was happening. So interpretations are you, and it's okay to have different interpretations. Hey, you can't hardly get together in a connect group without having multiple interpretations in the room. What I want you to see is that interpretations are not as important as essentials. And we don't have to fight over them. We can disagree about them, and it's okay. It's not, it's not a big deal. We live in a pluralistic society. Surely Christians who interpret the scriptures differently can get along. Yeah, you all know what, the, what I'm just saying right there and how hard it is. What is the number one thing that the world critiques us of? It's probably, the number one thing is probably hypocrisy. We say things, but we don't do well, I, And I'm like, this church is full of normal people. <laughs> you know, there's no way we can get away from that. But the second thing that they say to us is, or they say about us, is we fight with each other. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples if you love each other. Got to work on that. The third, the third band is deductions. Sometimes in the scripture we'll look at deductions and, we'll, and, and we'll, that this is the kind of thing where you add two things together and come up with a conclusion. And so you'll say, now because it says this in Ezekiel and because it says that in Revelation, we can conclude that Jesus will return in December 21st, 2012. People, that was actually, there was a group of people that really thought he was going to come back. They put up billboards and stuff. And so deductions are certainly not as powerful as in, in, uh, interpretations. Certainly not anywhere near as important as essentials. And then finally, you've got everything else, which is preferences, style of church. You've got personality of, of, a, of a congregation or of a pastor. And then you've got rituals and, and things like that that are really just uh, people's preferences. And what, what I, I, really, I really don't like it when people say things like, yeah, I went to that other church for a while, and they're just not anointed. The worship's just, there's no spirit. What they're really saying is, I didn't like the style. And most often what they're saying is, and for one person to evaluate where the Holy Spirit is working in a church, let me tell you something. I think the Holy Spirit is working in his church no matter who's meeting, no matter who's there, no matter how liberal or conservative, no matter what's going on in a church, that Jesus Christ is the head of his church and he's working by his spirit. Don't say churches are dead. Jesus is trying to get in there. <laughs> Do you know how most people choose their own, choose their church? 
<laughs> How do most people choose their church if you look at that? Yeah, preferences. <laughs> I, like, I like the style. I like the way the pa- I can't stand the way that pastor teaches. I'm not, I can't go back there. All right, all right, okay, okay. but but let's but let's uh, let's understand what we're really talking about because most of your questions, your, most of your questions are going to fall in the interpretation and deductions and preferences category, most of them, vast majority of them. So we don't have to get all bent out of shape and uptight if I don't answer it the way you like. All right, okay. So let's let's let's. You, you want to answer a couple? Some of you had to fold them up, didn't you? Yeah, I don't want anybody to see mine. Okay. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. Why is the carpet so dirty at church? <laughs> that is so awesome. Because you people are pigs. <laughs> yeah, you're, that's an interpretation, right? Um, so listen, here's, here's the deal. Here, here's the real thing. Everybody hold up your coffee. Who's got coffee in your hand, right? Okay, you got coffee in your hand. What I want you to do is take it out when you leave, all right? No, but listen, I've, I made a fundamental decision, and here it is. I made a fundamental decision that the church is not the body of Christ. The church building is not the body of Christ. The people are the body of Christ. And so I'm willing to have to replace the carpet every few years because we're going to use the heck out of this building. And we're going to create community. And we're going to create fellowship. And coffee's one of those things. And take it with you when you leave and throw it in the trash. But it does have a philosophical underpinning. Why the carpet is dirty. And we're trying to clean it. If we, if we would have, I mean, if we would have had the opportunity, we would make this stained concrete and then it'd be easier to clean up. And frankly, um, maybe at some point we will. We'll see what happens. But that's why the carpet is dirty. All right, you, should we do one more? And then I'm going to do a couple that I got online, right? I know, it's so exciting, isn't it? In our opening creed, what does it mean when it says, we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sin? Is this talking about a water baptism or the baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's a great question. Um, That question came in uh, online as well, so I'm going to take a minute to answer it. When the creed was written, there were uh, many ancient religions that used ritual ceremonial washings or baptisms. And you even see in some of the archaeological digs from that time, people would have their own personal baptisms. And so what the uh, church fathers were doing when they started, when they, when they put the creed together and they put this line in here, they were articulating that there is one baptism that results in forgiveness. This should not be confused with any other baptism. There is one baptism where you identify with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. 
And that one baptism results in a new life in Christ. It's obvious by the rest of the creed, you have the, th- the three parts, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in those, it's very clear what each section is about regarding the, what we believe about the Father, what we believe about the Son, what we believe about the Holy Spirit. And then it, at the end, this phrase comes, and, and it comes, uh, I, think the, I think the finishing of the phrase is, um, we believe in one holy, worldwide, and apostolic church, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. He's summing up. He's saying this should not be, this is not, <laughs> if we took it in our day, we would say that they were saying, It's not about your own personal baptism. There's only one. There's only one, and it's not that baptism forgives sins. That's not what the creed is saying. It's saying that there is one immersing, one immersion into Christ. Your baptism into Christ, it is the only one that creates transformation. It is the only one that identifies with his death, burial, and resurrection. It is the only one that results in forgiveness of sins. That's what it says. Now, sometimes I get people asking the question about, uh, we believe in one holy worldwide and apostolic church, and they think, well, isn't that, did you change that or something? Because, and we did, we changed one word, and the word was Catholic. If you heard it other places, it says, we believe in one holy Catholic and, and apostolic church, all right? And so, as not, so here's, here's what happens. Catholic is a Latin word. What does it mean? It means universal. It means worldwide. Right? So all we did was translate the last Latin word into English for you so we don't create confusion. We, are, we would be called Protestants. I do believe in the Protestant Reformation, but I also understand that the, that the church worldwide is found in all kinds of places and some places where I'm not as comfortable as others. And there's, there, there is a history that is part of our history that has to do with the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church is different in America than it is around the world. The, the Catholic Church in America has been, has been um, influenced by the Protestant Church in America. So it, it's different in the other places in the world. There's, it's, it's, it's got some more serious problems. But, but I, 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 all we did was translate the last Latin word into English, and that's why it's said that way, okay? Does that make sense? All right. All right, so, so uh, I'll take one from offline now, or from online. Um, not offline, it's online. Okay, so here it is. So number two, what is the purpose of church? If I know God and love him and read the Bible, why does it matter if I'm part of a church or not? This is such a great question. I believe that um, we live in an age of individualism, and... Uh, We've been fed a steady diet of church is not about Sundays, right? It's not about Sundays. It's, it's bigger than that, right? And that's a good idea. We, um, we've also had 50 or 60 years of this phrase, your personal, my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My personal Lord and Savior. You understand what there's, it's my personal Lord. So it makes it, we, we, we tend to use that phrase and we begin to look at God through the lens of our own personal relationship. Now, is God personal? Of course he is. We just got through talking about it. He is personal, but he is not individualistic. God himself lives in community. It's called the Trinity. He exists in community. 
When you look at Deuteronomy 6.4, it's, it's the, called the Shema, and it's, it, the word means hear. It means hear, O Israel, is what, how the verse starts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one, but it has even a deeper meaning to it because he is three in one. It's a mystery. The Trinity, the Trinity is a mystery within the scriptures as we, as we put it together and as we read it and read the story of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But I am deeply Trinitarian because I believe it is foundational to understanding Christian faith because Christian faith cannot be practiced in an individualized, isolated spirituality. It cannot be practiced by yourself. It is a communal religion. We see it in the Old Testament when God is interacting with people. We see him dwelling in the midst of people when they put up a tent. God instructs Moses to put a tabernacle in the midst of the camp of his people while they're in the wilderness. They're going to the promised land. They've been released from Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land, and he is in the midst of their community. If you go all the way back up to Jesus' prayer in John 17, he's praying with his Father. He says, Father, let them be one like we are one. Let them be one. Let them be unified as we are one. But he, he doesn't just say it for the sake of unity, right? He said, are you guys interested in this? Is this okay? Am I losing you? I just got theological and I could see it. He doesn't say it just for the sake of unity. Jesus prays it because there's a reason. Something happens when this, when this goes on. He says, make them one like you and I are one so that the world will believe that you sent me. That's what Jesus says. The world will believe. We are supposed to be an alternative community, something that functions differently than the world. There is a sacred community that we are part of as God's people. We are the, the, the community of Christ. The Bible calls it the ecclesia, the called out ones. The ones who are called out. Here's the amazing thing about God. He calls us out of the world and then into a community and then sends us right back into it. But that does not mean that we, are, we, we should not embrace our community as believers. And I think we're in danger of losing the ability to grow spiritually because we're so individualistic. If you read Ephesians 4 and many of, the, many of the other writings of the Apostle Paul, you will find that in it he's coaching the group of believers. Wherever he's talking to them, he's saying, here's what I want you to learn. Learn how to treat one another. Learn how to forgive one another. Be kind and compassionate towards one another. Make sure that you're not um, um, backbiting and, and, and arguing with one another. And he's settling arguments. He's trying to help people surrender to Jesus. And here's the deal. The way that we surrender to Jesus is in community. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to give you one phrase, and Kate, can you put this phrase up? It's the, their, their relationships are the method and the measurement. Relationships community are the method and the measurement for spiritual growth. You can write it down. Yes, write it down. It's the method because it's only in community that the rough edges get knocked off of you and I. Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So one person sharpens another. It is also the measurement. If you look at, <laughs> if you look at um, Galatians 5, 22, 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying the way you know how you have the fruit of the Spirit, it can't be measured unless you're in relationship because we've got to measure whether or not you're loving. The fruit of the Spirit is the way you're patient with other people. You know you have the fruit of the Spirit. We, can expect, we get to ex- inspect the fruit because we're in a relationship. So, so many people think it's just, okay, I can just, I can just put my hiking boots on and I can go up into the mountains and I can put my iPod in with, a, with worship music and that's church for me. I don't want to deal with all those people. And, it, and it's interesting because is it true that they can interact with God when that happens? Absolutely. But what are they missing when they only use that as church? We've got to recapture the sacredness of the assembly. Did you know that the national average for church attendance is 2.3? 2.3 Sundays, 2.3 weekends out of a month. That's about 50%. I'm pretty sure that Austin is less. Because <laughs> there's so much to do. So, much, so many fun things to do. And I, I just want to challenge you that we need to value the ecclesia, the koinonia. Koinonia means fellowship. It means the loving relationships that we form here. Because it is the method and the measurement for how spiritual growth happens. And I think you see that through the scriptures. And I believe that as uh, the pastor of one chapel. So I think church is important. Now, can you do that in small groups? Absolutely. And what happens here, I think every person that comes to our church needs to come to our celebrations and vision casting and teaching and training and encouragement that you're part of something bigger than yourself. When you come here, the Holy Spirit speaks to us about breakthrough. He speaks to us about what's going on in our lives. And and we realize that we're not alone. And then during the week, we involve ourselves in real, genuine, authentic community that where we, where we actually practice, we are not alone. And so you can't just come to Sunday and let that be enough. And you can't just go to a small group and let that be enough. I think there's, I think there's something more. We, we are part of the worldwide body of Christ. I was just looking at an email this week because next week is, starts um, an, an effort to pray through the 1040 window. And we're going to talk about the nations that are in the 1040 world where the poorest of the poor live, where the gospel is not shared, where people are persecuted and, and tyranny reigns. This, this is an important thing for us to do as American Christians because we are not alone. We, don't, we can't think that we've got it all figured out. There are Christians all over the world suffering in persecution and they need our prayers and we need to learn from them. We got to be connected that way. That's what church is. That's who the church is, all right? Should we do one more? We really don't have time. Really? Are you sure? I'm certainly not going to pick a closed one. Let's see. Oops. Why does the... Man, you people... So many, I guess you don't write anymore, do you? You just type. <laughs> Why does the first text 
and Leviticus include rules about slavery since slavery is wrong. Oh, why does it say in Leviticus includes rules about slavery but doesn't get rid of slavery? Um, they, this is a criticism of the scriptures that some people have, and, and Paul, the apostle also, and Peter, I think, also address this, and they t- teach slaves and masters how to treat one another. And in some way, this tacitly tends to cause people to think that they're approving of slavery. They are not. The fact that the Bible teaches people who live in a culture where slavery exists how to deal with it uh, I think it's good to see it in, the, in, the, in a framework that says the Bible was written to people as their culture was, not as maybe it, they, they wished it would be. Paul dealt with slaves and masters because that was the culture that he was living in, and he was trying to coach the first century church how to come together. In, it, slavery was a worldwide phenomenon, and, and so when the church was growing, slaves... And masters, owners, were coming to the same gatherings. And Jews and Gentiles were coming to the same place. And men and women were being um, enthused and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it freaked everybody out because there were definite divisions here. And the point of Paul and his writings and even the Old Testament writings is I, I think it's a step too far to say that the Bible approves of slavery. I think the Bible is about coaching what's going on in our culture. And I think it, that's the power of the document. It, 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 um, it speaks to us today, even all these years later. If you live in a country where there is slavery, and it's not going to change anytime soon, how does a Christian live in that culture? And the Bible teaches them how it happens. And how they should treat one another. It actually says, slaves, work for your masters. Not just when they're looking, but because you're working for the Lord. Masters, it says, treat your, treat your slaves, treat the people who work for you with respect. Because you know that you have a master. And you're going to be judged. Paul is creating respect regardless of social class. He's creating respect regardless of where you land on an economic ladder. And we need to learn from that today in our world. We need to make sure that we have respect for all people, no matter what they're going through, no matter what position they hold in our society. And if we could be those kind of people, if we could be the kind of people where the the world would trust us because they wouldn't see that we are against them, that we are for them, what could happen in our city? Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about that, all right, in regards to our social dynamics in our city. You don't want to miss next week. (laughs) All right, close your eyes and bow your heads, and let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness, the richness of your word, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that we sense is among us. Lord, teach us how not to be afraid of questions, and teach us how to think about things clearly, how to have dialogue, and then continue to hold unity in the body of believers as something that's so central and something so powerful. Lord, teach us what this means together as a community. Help us to influence the greater community of Austin and the surrounding area with the gospel, with the message of truth. We thank you for this. 
And we receive from you now. In Jesus' name, amen.